up three times last week in a different state, three different times, so I'm just glad that I get to be close home where, <laughs> where I don't have to do that this week. Uh, I'm going to ask you tonight, if you have your Bibles, if you would open with me in the Gospel of John again, and I want to read from the seventh chapter of the Gospel of John, three verses. John chapter 7, I want to read verse 37 through 39. John chapter 7, 37, 38, 39, and if you like to stand for the reading of the word, you're welcome to do so. <clears throat> I have a special love for the Gospel of John. We talk about the love of God. Uh, it's exemplified in the apostle of love, who is John. And I'm glad that uh, we talk oftentimes, he still loved me in spite of me. The fact is, he is love. He can do no other. And as C.S. Lewis said, he never loves us because we're lovable. He loves us because he is love. And so I'm glad, even while I was an enemy to the cross, that he loved me and gave himself for me. Aren't you? That's how much he loves you and continues to love you. John chapter 7, verse 37. <clears throat> the first two verses... Jesus gives us an invitation. The last verse is a parenthetical statement. John gives us the interpretation. So first two verses, the invitation by Jesus. In the last days, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture said, out of his belly or inmost being shall flow rivers of living water. John interprets what Jesus invites. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Father, we come one more time, leaning heavily upon your arm, knowing that you love us, and that you want us to to show that same love to you. We have not that capacity apart from the Holy Spirit shedding the love of God abroad in our hearts. So we ask God that you would receive it from us gladly and that you would bless the reading of your word. May we receive it with great joy. And may we will not only be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> Two simple words, the invitation, and then it's given to us by John as an interpretation. The invitation is given in the first two verses. Let me give you the historical setting of what's taking place in these first two verses. In Jerusalem, the Jews were celebrating the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, next to the Passover feast, it was the greatest annual feast of the Jewish economy. It was held probably in the fall of the year. It was the Feast of Harvest, celebrating the harvest somewhere in September, October. And for seven days, the people lived in tents and booths that they constructed, and they celebrated with offerings and feasts and songs. I've often wondered if perhaps maybe this is not like our fairs that we go to and spend a week at the fair, but this is a unique feast, the Feast of Tabernacle. Each day at the break of the dawn, a procession of priests would make their way to the Fount of Siloam and they would fill their vessels of water. 
when they would come back at the sound of the silver trumpets, they would take those vessels, ascend to the steps of the temple, and pour the water on the altar. Now this was in commemoration of the time when the children of Israel was in the wilderness, and they were without water, and Moses petitioned the Father, and he said, strike the rock, and outflowed the water. First Corinthians, Paul then confirms to us that that rock was Christ Jesus. But now we've come in this setting to the last day of the feast. The water now was greatly reduced. The people were weary. They were exhausted, to say the least. And the celebration of joy now was waning. And all of a sudden, a cry went out in that crowded court of the temple, a Christ speaking as never a man spoke before, but as clear as the silver trumpets he was speaking. And he cried out, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. No one else in this world could ever make such an invitation. Only Christ could accomplish this. He alone fills all the promises of which he extends to you and me. For example, come all ye the heavy laden and and I will give you rest. Only he could give to us the rest that he calls us to. He promised that he would be light if we could walk no longer in darkness, and he alone is the one that would give to us that light. He promised that he is the spiritual bread. We can partake of the bread of life of which Christ himself is the only. He promised eternal life to those who were dead in their sins, and all through the scripture, particularly John, he has all of those great I am's, I am, I am, and if we come to him, we can re gladly receive them. But if you notice here, this call is to the thirsty. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Now the figure of the water was very meaningful to the people of the Orient. They knew all about the hot sun, they knew about the burning sands, they knew of the dusty roads and the blinding heat, they had seen animals who had their bones bleached in the desert sands. So this offer of cool water was very inviting to them. But I think it goes deeper than that because it's an indication that the rituals of the temple worship could not quench the burning of the thirst they felt within. In fact, uh, they were broken cisterns, as Jeremiah said, that could hold no water. As Jesus said in the fourth chapter of this gospel to the woman at the well, you remember, he said, Whosoever drink of the water that I shall give them shall never thirst again. Here he speaks it to the crowded folks in the temple. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Now it's interesting that we divide the word very carefully. By the way, I had an old prof years ago said so there are two things we must be consistent. Number one, we must define our terms actu uh, accurately and we must divide our word properly. I'm afraid sometimes that does not always get done. When he says, if any man thirsts, he's obviously talking to those who are thirsty. Now I must say to you, there is no gospel for those who have no thirst. God has nothing for those who, doesn't, who do not want anything. So he's calling exclusively to the thirsty, and when one is spiritually thirsty, Nothing can satisfy like the water that Jesus gives. Food can't, fame can't, fortune can't satisfy or quench this thirst. I read a little poem recently, said, This frail vessel thou hast made, no hands but thine can fill. For the waters of the world have failed, and I am thirsty still. That seems to be the plight of the world in which we live. 
In Psalms 42, we heard the psalmist say, the deep calleth unto the deep uh, at the water spouts. In other words, man's deep need cries out for the all-sufficient fullness that only Christ can give. Come unto me. He is not only the source, he is the stream. He is the fount of living water. Some time ago reading, there was a man that you would remember the name, the Lawrence of Arabia, and he took some uh, inhabitants, nomads, who had lived out in the desert all of their life, and he brought them into a hotel in Cairo, Egypt. And they were amazed at that hotel. They, the rooms were cool. There was the fans in the room. The beds were clean. But the thing that most importantly uh, stirred them was there was water that flowed out of the faucets in the rooms in which they were staying. In fact, they couldn't get over and all they could think about, we need these faucets out where we live so that we can have water coming out of those faucets. They were there for several days and finally as they got ready to go, they went into the room and they were trying to take those faucets off of the wall. Off of the wall. And the Lawrence of Arabia said those faucets have to be connected with pipes that go to the source of the stream of water. The faucets do you no good. Well, I think it's kind of interesting that we have to understand Jesus is the source. He is the stream from which the living water flows. He's the balm for the broken and the bleeding. He's the panacea for all of our ills, and he's the remedy for all of our pain. And he says, come unto me, and I will give you your needed needs. If struggling with past guilt, I can tell you, he can give us a blood-bought pardon. If we're fettered with vices and habits and addictions, he said he can break the power of canceled sin and set the prisoner free. His blood can make the vilest clean. His blood availed for me. If we're heartsick or homesick or homeless or hopeless, he said, if you come to me, I will receive you. If we are forsaken and friendless, he said, if you come to me, I will take you in. You'll be my children. I'll be your heavenly father. He is everything we need and more than we need because he is more than sufficient. There was a young lad one day who was in a rather large home and uh, there a large family, I should say, and his father was not very well and unable to care for the family as he should and could, would like to. And so this older son decided he needed to help his father take care of the family. One day as he was out early in the morning hours passing papers trying to get money to assist his father in raising the, the family and taking care of the children, get, buying the food and whatever they needed. And one day in his haste, he ran across the streets. And when he ran across the street, an automobile struck him. And when the automobile struck him, he was immediately taken to the hospital. And he was laid out on the bed and brought in back to consciousness. And they began to minister to him. He was in the hospital for several days, but while he was in the hospital, he was overwhelmed by, again, the beauty of the hospital. The sheets were white and clean, and, and the way they cared for him was overwhelming. Nobody had ever done that before. The food was good until one day they brought in him into him a tray, and on the tray was not all more food than he could drink, but all eat, but also a big cold glass of white creamy milk. He looked at that big glass of milk and he looked with big eyes at the nurse and finally he said to her, how deep can I drink? How deep can I drink? He was not used to having that kind of uh, abundance of milk, particularly 
And she looked at him and said, son, you can drink all that you want, and if you empty it, we'll fill it up again. I never got over that because I know that was some of our lifestyle. We didn't always have everything we'd like to have, and milk was one thing that we were deprived of more than I'd like to talk about. We used to have the canned milk. We used to dilute with the water. Once in a while, we'd be able to get a farmer, and we'd go buy some uh, gallons of milk and have it. It was a very rare thing, so I could relate to what this young man was going through. All I know is if you're thirsty for Jesus, there is no lack. You can drink as much of him as you want. In fact, uh, you can have as much of God as you want. If any man thirst, let him come and drink. Now, this word drink is the verb for faith. We don't have a word faith in Jesus. So the word drink literally is a verb, and the thirster drinks from the wells of living water. But when I said to you, divide your scriptures properly, the next verse is not talking about the thirster. If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And then he says, he that believes on me. The thirster now has moved from a thirster to a believer. He says, he that believeth on me out of his inmost being shall flow rivers of living water. Notice when he said that, it's unrestricted. It's literally fully flowing. It's not rivulets. It's not rills. It's not even a river. Out of his inmost being shall flow rivers of living, not stagnant, but living waters. That's the scene historically. That's what Jesus is saying to these who found the ritual worship of the temple unsatisfying. He said, I can satisfy you. Now, John gives us the interpretation of what he has just said. In the final days of his earthly ministry, Jesus spent most of his time talking to his disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit, who came, of course, as you know, on the day of Pentecost. He told them, it's expedient for you that I go away. He said, if I go not away, the comforter cannot come unto you. But if I go away, I'll send him unto you. He said, I'll not leave you orphans. I will send him unto you. Salvation is a gift at every stage. God gave his son, the son gave the spirit, and the spirit gives gifts. When you read throughout the word, in order for this promise to be fulfilled, John reveals two interrelated facts that I read in the last verse, this little parenthetical verse that John gives. He says the Holy Spirit, number one, was not yet given. Number two, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the gift of the Spirit was contingent on the glorified Savior. If that's true, and it's the Bible, so it's true, I want to show you the meaning of those two things. First, the glorified Savior. Following the resurrection of Christ, he was seen 11 different times in those some 40 days following his resurrection before he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. He was seen those 11 times by his believers. He finally, after those 40 days, ascended back to the right hand of the Father as now seated at the right hand of the Father in what is called his exalted or his enthroned position. Now, if you think when Jesus died and rose again, went back to the Father, he stopped working for us, I've got news for you. He has never stopped because he is our mediator. 
He is our intercessor. He intercedes constantly on your behalf. In fact, every time you pray, every petition, every prayer, he is dealing with your prayers at the right hand of the Father. He is our advocate in heaven. We have now the advocate in our heart in the person of the Holy Spirit. We have him in heaven ministering for our needs. We know he's there because there have been witnesses that saw him there. You say, how could anybody have ever seen Jesus at the right hand of the Father? Do you remember whenever Saul was threatening the Christian church and he's literally martyring, he was the first uh, terrorist to fight the Christian church. And if you remember, as he was trying his best to destroy the Christian church, there was a man that they were stoning. His name was Stephen. You can read it over in the book of Acts. Stephen was a very godly man. And Saul, who had not yet been converted, so his name was Saul, yet not Paul, he was consenting to the stoning of Stephen. And there Stephen stood, and it says his face just glowed like an angel. And as they pummeled him with those stones and literally uh, stoned him to death, all of a sudden he stands up and looks. And he says he looked up steadfastly into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now it's interesting to note it's the only place where it states that Jesus was standing. Every other time he's sitting on the right hand of the Father. I'm convinced he stood to welcome into the kingdom the first Christian martyr. And those men, along with Saul, for the first time saw a man outlive and outlove and outdie his enemies. Lay not this sin to their charge, as Stephen said. And that, of course, stirred Saul, if you remember, as he was on the road to Damascus, and a light above the brightness of the sun fell upon him. And you remember Jesus looked at him and said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. What was prodding him? What was he being pricked over, over the man that saw his face shine like an angel, and they were stoning him? And it was there that Saul was converted, went on into the city of Damascus, where later Ananias came, laid hands on him, received his sight, went into the Arabian desert to study for the ministry, and wrote 13 epistles in the New Testament. I say all of that to say to you that this man Saul, the wicked Saul, became the witness Paul. This murderer would ultimately become the martyr. You can read it in Timothy where he said, my time has come, and he went out and they chopped his head off. He was beheaded. He saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father. So we know he's there. He's not the only one that saw Jesus. If you go to the book of the Revelation, you remember John on the Isle of Patmos. He got a glimpse of him. He said, I saw him in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He said his hair was white like wool. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His voice was like the sound of Many waters, he said, in the right hand were seven stars, and his feet was like fine brass that burned in a furnace. And he described what he's seen there in the heavenlies, and all of a sudden, the glory that he was so overwhelmed with, he fell at his feet as dead, and God reached out his right hand. Fear not, John, I'm the first and I'm the last. I'm he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And he said, I have the keys of hell and death. 
And he said, these keys, one of these days soon, is going to go into a lock that hangs on the door that swings on its putrefying hinges, and I'm going to cast all death and all disease and the devil into it. I'll lock the door and throw away the key, and we will be done with him forever. And he saw him at the right hand of God in the midst of the golden candlesticks. We know Jesus is there. We know why he's there. In fact, the promise was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was initially poured out in the upper room, those looking on were so overwhelmed at what was taking place. Sixteen different nationalities were hearing it in their own language. And they looked at each other and said, what does this mean? And all of a sudden, Peter stood up in the midst. He said, well, this is that, which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And Peter reminded them this, Jesus, being at the right hand of God, exalted, and having received the Father from the, of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this, which you now see and hear. Grace is flowing like a river. Millions here have been supplied. Still, it flows as fresh as ever from the Savior's wounded side. That's the glorified Savior. That's what had to be, take place before we could receive the gift of the Spirit. Now note the gift of the Spirit. If it's true that three things had to take place to see him glorified, one, there had to be the sacrifice that he made on the cross. Number two, he had to be followed by his resurrection. Third day, he rose from the dead. And finally, his ascension and enthronement at the right hand of the majesty on high. Thus, we have a glorified Savior. What about the gift of the Spirit? Just as Jesus was enthroned in heaven, he also must be thrown, enthroned in the hearts of men and women. That's why he admonishes the church, the believer, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He says, if you enthrone me, I will emancipate you. That's why Romans says there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free, emancipated me, made me free from the law of sin and death. I recall if four weeks after I was converted, of that very experience where I enthroned him in the heart. And I want to major on that somewhat this week before I'm through to give you a sense of how does that take place? What takes place for that enthronement? How do we exalt him in our hearts and our lives? I can tell you by an emancipation proclamation issued in the throne room of heaven, God wants to consummate it on the ground of our soul for whom the sun sets free, he's free indeed. Where there is no enthronement, there can be no bestowment. We cannot receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit until we give him total rule and total reign in our hearts and lives. Did you notice those two not yets? The not yets in this passage, the second not yet, will cancel the first not yet. It says the Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So if the second is canceled, he is glorified, it will cancel the first where the Holy Ghost was given.
Now, the Holy Spirit is a gift. He's a person. He's not an influence. He's not some kind of feeling. He's not an it. He's a person. The person of the Holy Spirit. And the person of the Holy Spirit must be received as a gift to his children. I'm making a, I'm making a statement for a reason. Remember, I think it's in the Gospel of Luke, if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? If he is a love gift, don't try to uh, drive a hard bargain in your consecration in giving yourself to God. Don't try to negotiate. A gift is not negotiable. In fact, when you come, you don't say, okay, God, I'll give you this if you'll give me that, or I'll do this if you'll do that. No, no. You give yourself in total abandon to him without reservation, without any qualifications, and when you do, there will be an immediate bestowment of the Holy Spirit in all of his fullness. This fullness that is received in sanctification is as distinct in its initial reception of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. We believe there are two works of divine grace, two epical experiences. One is regeneration, coming alive, being born again, being adopted. And then there is entire sanctification. Now, sanctification not only means a separation or setting apart, it means a purifying or making holy. And so this is only an act that God can perform. We can make the separation and we can make a consecration, but only he can cleanse from all sin. And that's done by faith in the merits of his blood. But we have to see the distinction between forgiveness and cleansing, between pardon and purity. They are as distinct as overflowing rivers are with wells of living water. When you are thirsty, you drink from the well. That is a personal, individual blessing. But when you are sanctified, out from you flows rivers of living water. The spoke key of the spirit, which they believe should receive. That is not containable. That flows, we become the conduit, we become the channel. And the Holy Spirit flows from the channel. I am... Um, I think sometimes we, what's the word I want to use, we diminish God's ability to do much in us because we want to control God. Uh, he won't allow you to control him, but he wants to control you. And when he does, I can assure you it will be you that he uses to reach out into the world that they might come to know the dynamics of the Holy Spirit in and through you. There's one other thing in this, and I'm not going to hold you long, but I want you to note, he says, in the last day of the feasts, he went out into the temple place, and there in the court of the temple made this invitation at the sound of the silver trumpets. But he also ushers in the last day of, our, of, this, of this dispensation. By that I mean everything that God needed to do to redeem fallen man has now been accomplished. There's nothing more further to be done. He who offered himself 
in total sacrifice on the cross. There's no more sacrifices to be made. All the animal sacrifices by the millions that were made before the priest stood daily offering sacrifices that never could make the cumbers there into perfect. But when Jesus offered himself, it said he sat down. Sitting down, contrary to them standing, means their work was never completed. His work was complete. There's no more need of another sacrifice. By the way, I'm thankful that I don't have to take some bleeding lamb to offer up for my sacrifice. I'm glad Jesus is the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And when I say this is the last ushered in the last dispensation, we are now receiving the last call of conviction, the last grip of repentance, and the last chance of reconciliation. Nothing more is coming. If we're waiting for something more to happen, it's not coming. He has accomplished it all in the death and resurrection of his son, Christ Jesus, and in the descension of the Holy Spirit. That's a good thing to have the Holy Spirit in the world because, you see, Jesus was governed by time. When he walked on the earth 33 years, by space, he could only be in one place at a time. Not the Holy Spirit. When he sent the Holy Spirit, you can have him when you go home. I'll take him home with me. And wherever we go, the Holy Spirit is universal. I'm reminded over in uh, John chapter 3, remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus? Came by night. Why he came by night, I don't know. I personally believe he was a, a very interested in, a, in, in finding out what this man knows. Uh, he approached him, he who be, he himself being a rabbi, he said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know thou art a teacher come from God. No man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. Rabbi, he was a teacher. But you see, Jesus was not merely a teacher. He was not merely a preacher. He was God. And Jesus looked at him and he said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus, you must be born again. But you remember in reading those few verses in John chapter 3, he universalized it first. He said, except a man, and that means except any man, be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom. But then he moved from universalizing it to individualizing it. He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And by the way, he was. And by the way, he was one of the two that took care of his body after they took it off the cross. And he tended when they laid him in the tomb. All I know is, folks, there can nothing be accomplished in and through you and me who are the church. And I say it again, the church is not a denomination, it's not a building. The church is the dwelling place where God is, a separate people who come out from the world. It's the church that Christ loved and gave himself for. The church cannot accomplish what God's called them to accomplish in their own strength except the Holy Spirit come, and we allow ourselves to be that conduit, that channel out through which the rivers of living water flow, the world will never know Jesus. And that's why he says, if you thirst, come and I'll quench your thirst. And everyone that believes on me, out of his inmost being shall flow rivers of living water. I ask you to consider where are you in your walk with Jesus? 
You know, I think sometimes we just go to church, we go through the forms of religion, we know the rituals, we know the sacraments, we know all the liturgy, we can quote scripture, but deep down, what has it done in your life? And not so much yours, what is your life doing in the lives of others? We need to consider, this is not a club like another social club in the world. This is a living, living life of Christ in his living people. I wonder this evening if you would just reverently stand with me and I've asked if we could sing a uh, hymn. Would you stand please if you could?